www.crookscountycounty.com. Um, this picture will be one of the first things you see. Click on this picture and it'll send you to um, the studies that you can listen to. So if you weren't here for last week, encourage you to listen to uh, one of the introduction studies of the series. And uh, also just to encourage you, maybe you're, <clears throat> you know, feeling out Calvary Chapel, um, maybe, you know, you've come off and on. I uh, just encourage you to press in with us uh, for the next nine weeks as we do this series uh, to hear what Calvary Chapel is about and uh, to hear what we believe the Bible teaches his church is about. And uh, just encourage you to, to stay, stay with us to hear the whole of God's vision for his church um, during this time. So um, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll dig in. Lord God, we just thank you for um, your Holy Spirit that you have sent to us, Lord, to empower us and um, to comfort us, Lord, and to speak through us to this world, uh, that we really could be little Christs for you. Um, Lord, as, as we just dive into one of the most important doctrines um, of the faith um, that so often is neglected, we just pray that you'd teach us, Lord. Um, Lord, a lot of us have different opinions. There's probably 50 different opinions, or for every person, there's a different opinion. And Lord, that all of our opinions would just come under the authority of your word. And uh, Lord, that we'd be teachable this morning. Um, Lord, we just pray that you would restore a passion for your church, or, or maybe for the first time, put a passion for your church in our hearts. And, um, and Lord, that you'd be glorified in that. So Lord, speak to us today. In this uh, somewhat topical Bible study, Lord, it's a, it's a beautiful, wonderful topic, God. And we just pray that you'd be glorified and you'd just be displayed as we look at your bride. Pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Amen. So, good question for you today is, what do you think about the church? Uh, perhaps in the last week, your feelings have been conforming and changing to be that of how Christ views the church. When you hear the word church, uh, what comes to your mind? And ask yourself when your coworker hears the word church, what comes to his or her mind or your friends and family members? It's important to think about the church uh, because the church is part of the gospel. Uh, one of the preachers I listened to went out into the community and took a survey of what the community thinks about the church. And there were kind of two different polar opposites of these responses. At best, people said that the church is a social gathering for good people to pacify their consciences, have a positive impact, make themselves feel good, and encourage good behavior while often helping others in need. Uh, some of the more poor responses uh, were something along, it's a dead, unorganized, worthless institute full of lifeless, ignorant, alien, judgmental, hypocritical, arrogant haters. And uh, those are quite different <laughs> reactions. Uh, John Stott says, the way you answer this question and how you feel about the church depends on whether we're talking about the church in its ideal state or the church in its real state, in its reality state. Um, in the church's ideal state, biblically, we have God's marvelous new community of men and women taken out of every tribe and tongue and nation. It's this ultimate multicultural, multiracial, multinational community whose Lives are sacrifices. Their lives are laid down for God to love him and worship him and uh, to serve each other and love each other and to witness to the world. But what seems to be more the reality is it's just me and it's just you. Uh, a lot of times it's a disorganized, motley crew of individuals who are divisive, backsliding, backbiting, and struggling. Uh, two polar opposites. And why is there this huge gap in between uh, the ideal and the real church? And I think uh, as we're studying this, this depth of a series, uh, we're going to see that there's just an under, a lack of understanding of what God's heart is for the church. Uh, and understanding that we aren't perfect as Christians. We're being sanctified. We're being built up, as Peter says, into God's spiritual house. Um, but really, we've forgotten, in essence, what the church is. Uh, 
Um, a lot of people see this huge gap in the ideal church and, and really what we tend to see, and, uh, and they call for a revolution or they call for an abandonment of the church. And it's time to start something of our own. And I think what really needs to happen and what God's going to do for us in this 10-week series, this is week number two, is that he's going to just reorient us around his word and around his heart. And you see, whenever there's a revival among God's people, there's a reorienting uh, around who he is. So God, do that in us as, uh, as we seek out who and what the church is to be. One man said that being always precedes doing. And so before we just, Roy, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do as a church member. Uh, we want to look at who we are and what we're to just be, who God has made us. We did that uh, in depth last week. Um, uh, so just encourage you to listen to that. But uh, being also determines our doing. Uh, what God has made us to be determines what we're going to do. So some quick review for those of you that uh, weren't here. It'll be new and fresh uh, for others, uh, especially if you were in a home group. Um, you, you've heard this uh, multiple times this week, but it's good. Let it wash over us. Um, what is the importance of studying ecclesiology? Ecclesiology, you might write that word down. Uh, ecclesia is the word church in the New Testament. Ecclesia. And really it means the gathering of people, the assembling of people. And most of you know ology means the study of, right? So studying of the gathering of God's people. Why is it important? One main reason we stressed last week is that it's the gospel being made visible. The church is the gospel made visible. Mark Deaver uh, said the doctrine of the church is of the utmost importance as it is the most visible part of Christian theology. It's what we see. It's what the world sees. It's really the Bible coming to life and it's vitally connected to every other part. The church arises only from the gospel and a distorted church usually coincides with a distorted gospel. And so as we spend much time looking into the gospel and seeing the gospel in the text of the word, in the meta-narrative from Genesis to Revelation all the way through, we see the gospel. We see God's grand story of his plan to redeem a people. And as we look at this grand scheme, the whole real story, the one story out of a whole lot of different books and a lot of different people, God's redemptive narrative, um, we see it all made visible through the church, his redeemed people, his born-again people. James Montgomery Boyce, a popular preacher in the 60s and 70s, uh, he said that Christ's work is the church's foundation but Christ's work continues in the church. The fullness of the mystery of God in redemption is disclosed among his people. And so as we spend time together gathering in various ways throughout the week, throughout the months, we have the fullness of God in redemption disclosed among us, even as we just gather together in fellowship. One of the... Uh, just old uh, church fathers, uh, one of his words have rung the bell in my heart this week. Uh, his name was Cyprian. He was the bishop of Carthage and a martyr for Christ. And he said, no one can have God for his mother or for his father who has not the church for his mother. And then Calvin would later say, for there is no other way to enter into this life unless this mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at her breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. And there's a lot to that. There's a lot of this salvation by grace through faith being born again and the Lord using his church, his bride, his flock, his building to build us up and to help us continue to the very end. And we're going to see that played out throughout this nine week series. How does that happen? How does that nourishment take place? How does that cherishing take place? 
Um, we'll see that as the weeks go on. Um, Arta Zerdia uh, from Trinity Church in Portland, uh, just a, a scholar, a pastor that we've come to love and know as elders. We just respect him. Um, said in his series on the church that passion for the church is something that is distinctly and unequivocally Christian. We can never despise the church, never ignore the church, never seek to live out authentic Christianity while keeping ourselves at arm's length from the church. We can never be cavalier about the church. And while it's possible to be a member of the church and not be a Christian, it's not possible to be a Christian and not be a member of the church. Big statement, right? Uh, well, let's define church. Little review. We're still in review mode here. Uh, defining the church. There's a few different marks of the church. Quickly, we're going to go through them. There's the universal church, all right? No, universal church speaks of all Christians all around the globe, tribes, tongues, nations, social statuses, colors of skins. You know, watching a video there, and we've got Ugandans and a, and a brother in Iran, all part of the universal church. Beautiful, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing. And then we have it boiled down, as we see in the book of Acts, as we see in the epistles. We see a local gathering within the universal sphere. We have little bits of local gathering all over. And, and a great thorough definition of the local church is given in a book called Vintage Church by Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears. And they just looked at the epistles. They looked at the book of Acts. They even looked in the Old Testament to see the foreshadowing of the church. And, uh, and they came up with this, I believe, thorough, in-depth definition of what a local church should be in the midst of all the universal that's going on. Uh, and they said the local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to the scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of communion and baptism, are unified by the spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scatter to fulfill the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. And so we see that um, here at Calvary Chapel. We see that at First Baptist Church. There's even some house churches that are following what a biblical pattern of a local church would be. And they just meet in a house in, instead of something like this. Praise God. There's qualified leaders according to First Timothy and First Peter chapter 5 and Acts chapter 20 and other passages where they've got elders that are shepherding within the house church. They're taking communion. They're baptizing. They're loving on each other. Uh, they're making disciples. Praise God. Uh, and so that's just a definition, I believe, thorough biblical definition of the local church. We've got the visible church, which is what we see. Uh, and we also have the invisible church, which is what God sees. And as, it, as was said a little bit earlier, it's possible to be a member of the church and not be a Christian uh, and, and the Lord sees that. He knows who is a Pharisee. He knows who's self-righteous. He knows who uh, hasn't rested in the saving work of Jesus, but is rather resting in their own righteous works. Uh, I don't know that. <laughs> and I don't attempt to know that and just call people out uh, all the time. It's probably happened. But only the Lord knows uh, who is part of the invisible uh, church. Martin Luther divined the visible church as a community holding common faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, there's the gathered and scattered form of the church. Today, church gathered. Uh, and then in about 45 minutes, scattered. Still the church, whether you're out doing your plumbing job or whether you're here uh, worshiping, singing songs, fellowshipping, or at a home group. Uh, last week, we looked at whose church is it? Whose church is it? And you guys remember? It's Jesus's church. The very first mention of the word ecclesia in the New Testament is in Mark chapter 16, verse 18. And Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So it's Jesus's church. Uh, he purchased it 
with his own blood. And we looked at last week, uh, an item's worth is gauged, first of all, by who owns it uh, and also what he paid for it, and especially what currency he paid for it. And we see that Jesus owns the church. And in depth last week, we looked at the purchase price and the purchase currency was his very blood, precious. As Ephesians chapter 5, 25 says, he says, Husbands, you should love your wives just as Christ loved the church, his bride, and gave himself for her. He gave himself. His flesh, his blood was the ransom price. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. And then just that verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so something like those phrases of the purchase price for the church show us the dignity, the value, the worth, the glory that God has for the church. Um, titles that we'll see in the weeks to come, such as it's his bride. Uh, we were just having an elder's breakfast this morning and we're like, man, we got to stop calling the church an it. She's the bride of Christ. And, you know, it's like, man, there's much more depth when you refer as the she, the organism of the church that Jesus loves so much. Uh, he purchased her with his blood. All review, all good, right? Good to be reminded of, of how much Jesus loves his church, my church, and the value of it as it was purchased with his blood. Remember John Huss, the 15th century Bohemian reformer, as he said, every earthly pilgrim ought faithfully to love Jesus Christ, the Lord, the bridegroom of that church, and also the church herself, his bride. And so, Poor theological understanding on the church, poor, poor ecclesial teaching will obscure the gospel. But a right ecclesial teaching will clarify the gospel. Mark Deaver, in his book, wrote, Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christians living together in local congregations makes the gospel visible. The church is the gospel made visible. And so why is it important to, who cares? Who cares about the church? Who cares about how? Because it's in the church, biblically, where we see the good, redemptive, salvific will of God and his sanctification work. It's all made visible in the congregation, in the local congregation. We closed last week by looking at one of the most important questions, how do I become part of the church? And remember, it's through regeneration. It's through being born again. It's not a matter of external attachment through giving money or attending something or, or even getting dipped in the water. That's not what makes you a church member. It's through being born again. The Old Testament says it's through getting a new heart. And the New Testament says it's through being born again, being made new by the Spirit of God. We who were afar off and dead in trespasses and sins... He brings us near, Ephesians says. By his blood, he brings us near. And so that's how you're a part of the universal church. That's how you're a part of the local church. That's how you're part of the visible or the invisible church. It's being brought near by Jesus Christ. And I encourage you, if you're not near this morning, man, that you would hear him today beckoning you. Come, I brought you to Calvary Chapel this morning that you might know, I want you to be near me. I want you to be one of my purchased possessions. So, review, check, all right? I uh, encourage you to listen to last week for just the full, the full uh, deal. Um, but this morning, we want to plow some new ground. And we want to look this morning at the purpose of the church. And this, you know, this, this idea, the mission of the church, it's really going to be throughout the rest of these nine weeks here. Um, but we're going to try to tackle at least some foundation uh, this morning. The purpose of the church. What should the church be doing? What is the mission of the church? You know, as we've read and studied guys like Peter, uh, guys like James, guys like John, as we look at some early church fathers like uh, John Huss and uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther and guys who laid down their reputation for the church, they 
uh, put their marriages on the line. Uh, they, they spent times in prison and sacrificed their freedom. Eventually, some of them martyred uh, for their position on, on how the Lord loves the church. What would make them do that? What would make them put it all on the line? And I think really it's because they understood the purpose of the church, the mission of the church. Uh, as we saturate in ourselves in this series with the purpose and the mission and how much Jesus loves the church and we gr- gain a greater understanding of the purpose on the church, uh, we're going to see intensity of passion arise for the bride, arise for the church. Uh, one man said the intensity of our passion is tightly connected to the awareness of purpose. And so as we understand purpose, God uh, create that passion the true goal of the local church's life in action. Are you writing this down? You don't have to. I'll put, by the way, if you go online and you click on that church and you go there, there's a PDF button you can click, and my notes are online. Uh, so you can go there and, and get all of this stuff. Um, but uh, the true goal of the local church's life in actions are the worship of God, the edification of the church, and the evangelism of the world. Uh, A strong case can even be made regarding financial giving as an element of public worship in lieu of Paul's instructions to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Um, Each of these purposes uh, add to and serve uh, the glory of God, make the glory of God known. It can be defined very simply, the mission of the church, as upreach, inreach, and outreach. You may recognize that from our study through Romans chapter 12. Uh, Upreach, inreach, and outreach. If you recall the Nicene Creed from last week, the church in Nicaea in the third century said, we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. They kind of defined the church there in, in the Council of Nicaea. But in addition to that, a lot of Protestant theologians and traditions have added to these four marks and included things biblically, such as church discipline to preserve the distinction between the church and the wicked age or the world, as we call it, um, has added things such as uh, the fellowship between God's people to love one another, um, to have a mission for lost people and to make disciples out of those lost people and to plant churches to further the name of Jesus Christ. All good mission statements, mission purposes uh, for the church. As you remember last week in 1 Peter chapter 2, and and we'll go there uh, again today, We've seen uh, some incredible ways that God esteems us as his church, Uh, a special nation, a holy nation, a chosen generation, a special people. All of those terms that we studied last week give the church incredible worth and value. And uh, as the French said in one of their common terms, uh, nobility obligates. We, we have these precious words used to define us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. Uh, chosen generation, holy nation, special people, nobility, royal priests uh, is used there in Peter. And uh, that French term, nobility obligates, really tends to come true for us. It leads us into incredible obligations. Uh, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert wrote a book called What is the Mission of the Church?, And they spoke out that the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. So are you guys getting it a little bit? You're kind of sensing what the purpose is. Um, you know, Azurdia said that you show me a person who's blasé or bored or nonchalant about the church, and I'll show you a person who has no ambition to see her God-given purposes achieved in this world. On the other hand, you show me a person who sees the church as she is seen by the living God, and I'll show you a person whose very passions are entwined to accomplish these purposes. 
Someone who understands the nobility of the church, that she's special, she's treasured, she's beautiful, she's worth, she's valued, she has mission and purpose. Oh, that God would grant us to grab hold of that and not be nonchalant, not be bored about the church, but be excited and passionate about uh, the Lord's bride. And so during these coming weeks, many of these sessions will fill into these threefold purposes of the church of upreach, which is worship, uh, inreach, which is loving within the local body, and outreach uh, to evangelize the world and to make disciples. All right, so that's going to be how the next nine sessions kind of all fit in. This week, we're going to look at upreach. This first noble task that we have as the church is a task of worship. Um, We are a theological community, all right, as the church. So we're theocentric. That means we're we're God-centered, or we're Christocentric, we're Christ-centered. That means that our identity as a church and all of our activities that we do are going to center around God. They're going to center around Christ. Our greatest aim as a church is to keep God in the center. And there's always that temptation to put someone or something or some program as center. But as a theological community, we want to keep God center for all of his glory. The main target as our church, the main aim, the main goal, the chief end of man, as the Westminster Confession puts it, is also the chief end of the church. Uh, And that chief end, that aim, that target is to glorify God, to glorify God in all that we do. As you look in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 23, as God is is pleading with Israel to repentance from idolatry. Uh, He says to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have made profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you've profaned in their midst, that the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. So even in the Old Testament, in God's calling out of his people, the ultimate, the chief end, yes, God's a God of love. Yes, God's a God that that has compassion. He's a God of compassion. He's a God of mercy. But the ultimate, the, the chief end is his glory for his namesake, for his praise. In the book of Isaiah, similarly, uh, he says, for my name's sake, chapter 48, verses 8 through 11, not on the screen this morning, for my name's sake, I will defer my anger. For my praise, I will restrain it from you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. And later on, I will not give my glory to another. It's for the Lord's sake. It's for his great name's sake that he set us apart as a holy nation, as royal priesthood as a chosen generation. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, all of these biblical church activities and mercy and being hospitable kind of culminates there in verse 11. Let's see, where are we starting out here? If anyone speaks, let him speak with the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So praise God, we have these gifts going out through speakers and preachers and and preaching with confidence as if they're preaching the very oracles of God or serving and ministering, doing it with the ability that God supplies in in beautiful way. 1 Corinthians 12, we see. Um, But all of that isn't the end in and of itself. The end Of it all, whether you're in the janitorial ministry or the nursery ministry or the men's ministry, you know, or your hospitality, the hospitality ministry, it's that in all things, God may be glorified. And Peter just reiterates it, that uh, he, to him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So no lesser matters are at stake within the church than the pronouncement of God's glory throughout all of his creation. That's why the church is so important. That's why studying the church and understanding who and what the church is, is important because 
No lesser matters are at stake than preaching the glory of God and showing all of creation uh, God's splendor. Charles Bridges expressed it, the church is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence. Sorry, I had to look up effulgence. I know you guys, it speaks of radiancy, how just the rays of God's glory being shot out. And so the church is the mirror that reflects the whole splendor and beauty, all the rays of God's glory, of his divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfection of Jehovah is displayed to the universe. Not amazing that that's what God has intended the gathering of born-again believers under qualified leadership, under the obedience of Scripture and studying the Word and partaking of the sacraments. As Jesus says, as long as you do this, you'll be doing it uh, to proclaim me and my death and my resurrection until I come again. All of these things that the church has been designed to do, we are the mirror that shines the, the effulgence, the shiny rays. We reflect the beautiful rays of God even his redemptive purposes uh, to mankind. To to quote James Montgomery Boyce again, it's as though the church is a stage upon which God has been presenting the great drama of redemption, a true life pageant in which it is shown how those who have rebelled against God and wrecked his universe are now being brought back into harmony with him, being agents of renewing and healing instead. I like that. The church is the stage where the drama takes place, that now we are uh, agents of renewing and healing uh, instead of, you know, wrecked rebellion. And it's all shined forth here how God has redeemed these people. As you look at Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, uh, all of this is to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers In the heavenly places. What is the church's purpose? To show even the angels and to show even uh, the demons God's incredible, manifold wisdom. It's all made known by the church. As you also look in Ephesians, where, where it speaks of praying, and it says, Now, according to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above what we could ever ask or think. And if you stop there, it'd be like, yeah, he just will do incredible things more than I would even want or think to ask. Then the verse continues, according to him, be glory in all the churches. Amen. And so it's the chief end of even answered prayer. Isn't even just what we would get what we want. It's for the glory of him who works in the churches. Are you guys getting that? Chief end of the church, the main thing is the glory of God and to be worshipers of him, to make him great. As we look there in, in the passage I keep quoting and never setting before you, I apologize. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Peter speaking to the dispersion uh, in, uh, I think it was, is it Galatia? I'm blanking right now. Um, Cappadocia, something like that. <laughs> um, it says there in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. We looked at each one of those things last week to show the incredible value of the church. Chosen generation, royal priesthood. That means priests that minister especially for the king. Kingly, you and me, royal priests, a holy nation his own special people. And then we want to underline in our Bibles here this word that, or maybe your Bible says so that, all right? So this is the purpose, all right? This is mission statement that Peter gives. Uh, Peter, who had learned it from Jesus and is now writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had once obtained mercy, but now had, who once had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So look at this, and and something we didn't touch on too much last week was this phrase, his own special people. Uh, It means, or if you have the ESV, yours reads, we are a people for his own special possession, uh, one translation says that we are a peculiar people. I kind of like that. You know, people kind of look at the church like, whoa, peculiar. Yes, we are. 
Um, what it literally means is we are a people for his own acquisition. God has chosen us to be peculiarly his. There is nothing, there is no other people group on the earth, there is another organization, even Christian organization, that have this type of dignity assigned to it. A special, peculiar people who have been purchased and acquired by God with his own blood to be his. One translation says we are God's peculiar treasure above others. And I like what one Hebrew scholar said. He said that this term is unique. And if you want to understand what it means, think about it like you think about your toothbrush. It says you share everything in your house, your room, your bed, your fridge, your food, your couch. No matter how much you love each other, you don't share your toothbrush, right? It's probably, we're in Primeville, so there's probably a, a few, uh, just kidding. Um, uh, but that's the idea, that, you know, share everything, right? But this, this is like that thing that's, that's mine, <laughs> you know? And that's, the Lord has us in that vein, in that mindset, a spe- special possession. The church belongs to God. We are his special possession, And so we get our worth and value, not so much from the culture around us, but from God itself. John Stott put it uh, like this in his book, The Living Church. It's a great read on the church. Uh, We are not only committed to Christ, we are also committed to the body of Christ. At least I hope so. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly, an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person, for the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought, nor is it an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community for his purpose, conceived in past eternity, being worked out in history, and to be perfected in a future eternity as not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church, that is, rather to call out of the world a people for his own glory. And how interesting, every scholar, every preacher, these are, these are just men that have spent and been spent for the kingdom, and many of them are dead now, and they finished the race well. And as they search and study the word, it always comes down to, they almost, every sentence almost ends with, for his glory. And he doesn't let us be isolated and individualized. But rather, he brings us together in a community for his glory. We're the people of his acquisition. Choice, care, and delight is shown to us. And as Peter says, it's that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. With this intent in view... That we would show forth by words and by actions, virtues and praises of him who's called us out. I want you there, if you have your Bible open to 1 Peter chapter 2, look there, uh, I believe it's verse 9, uh, at the word proclaim. The word proclaim means to show forth or to publish abroad or to advertise. We're these big giant billboards that advertise the praises of God, the virtues of God. The Greek means his excellencies. We're just giant billboards flashing with neon LEDs, you know, just showing the world the excellencies of God. As chapter 2 verse 3 of 1 Peter says, indeed we have tasted that the Lord is gracious. He's calling us to this very important purpose here, to proclaim, to advertise his praises, to worship him, and also to witness of him. Both of these ideas are uh, contained in the word declare or proclaim. It means worship, but it can also mean witness. And so we've kind of got two of our purpose, uh, you know, main purposes of the church right here in first Peter chapter two, verse nine, that we're to proclaim, we're to worship and witness in that. And something you'll always see both in worship and in witness that Peter lays out here. First of all, the subject of our worship or witness is that it's God. And I hope you remember this. This is key. As we are worshipers, as our chief end is to glorify and to worship, 
the subject that we're worshiping will always be God, the triune God. And the content of that worship will always be his excellencies. We'll marvel at him. Even his salvation and redemptive excellencies, those who uh, we've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, our worship and our declaring, that can be in a broad sense, as Romans 12, 1 says, uh, that we would present our bodies as living sacrifices. The whole idea there is one of worship. Um, as you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, 12, this is just like the verse right after where we're at right now. Uh, it says that we uh, would have good works observed at the end of verse 12, that, that they might glorify God in the day of visitations. This is all just broad worship, right? We're just obeying the Lord and we're living for him and people see us and they glorify God in the day of visitation. Another broad aspect of worship is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And sometimes we think of worship as just singing with Kendra, you know, as she plays the piano. But there's, there's more of a broad context uh, to worship. Eating, drinking, conversation, the movies that we watch, we can worship the Lord in those things. Everything that we do uh, should be worship to the Lord. A biblical pattern of worship will always be in response to God's revelation of himself. As you look throughout the scriptures, there's all these different little worship sessions that happen. You know, your mind might go to uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, and right after they got across the Red Sea, they sang the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. Or you read the Psalms, which are just hymns of worship to the Lord. Maybe you think of Zechariah's song, as we just read Luke in the Christmas story, or Mary's song. Just They're always responding to God's revelation of his just incredible works and his plan and who he is. Paul has what's called Paul's song in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 or Revelation song, which we actually sing a song from Revelation called Revelation song, saying it last week. Um, they're all responses to who God is. And it's the chief end of man. And one pastor that I love, Alistair Begg, he just said, man, our mission, our vision statement is Revelation chapter 5, and we're going to get there in a minute. Just the whole of saints around the throne of God, worshiping God. Edmund Clowney wrote, God demanded of Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might worship me in the desert. And God brings them out so that he might bring them into his assembly, to the great company of those who stand before his face. God's assembly at Sinai is therefore the immediately goal of the exodus. God brings his people into his presence that they might hear his voice. And like I said about everyone I'm quoting, they might hear his voice and worship him. As God brings them out of, and he brings them into an assembly and he gathers them before Mount Sinai. They would hear his voice and worship him together. The, the context and all of the orientation of 1 Peter that we're reading, or um, you know, the context of the church, Acts chapter 2, it's all corporately and congregational in its orientation. It's not simply for the quiet time in our prayer closet. Great times, wonderful times, but God has even more than that. Um, Peter spoke in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that we are living stones, all being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're together. We're all stones together. We'll see that in the weeks to come. John the Revelator put it like this. Let's read that Revelation song who, uh, you know, Beg just said, man, that's, that's the vision. That's the end, man, that we're just before the throne worshiping God. Revelation 5, verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and, and this is Jesus taking the scroll there in the, in the book, 
And everyone just starts rejoicing. Uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Now, listen, they're just responding to how God has revealed himself. For you were slain and you've redeemed us to God by your blood. And out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, You've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power uh, and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth is such as that are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever I cannot wait until that worship time you guys that is a time where the subject he's right there in fact you have the trinity right there in front of us. And we're just able to worship God, the triune God, and cry out. And we're declaring, uh, even in front of the angels, the angels have always been looking into what God's doing in his plan of salvation. Uh, We're just declaring God's excellencies, his mercy, his uh, plan of redemption. And so the question in our worshiping is not, why do we worship, but why do we not worship? You know, as you see the church in the end there, uh, in Revelation chapter 5, just just shouting out with billions of angels the excellencies of God. Man, so often our view of God is, is so limited. You know, a friend of mine and I recently just uh, encouraged him to go through uh, the knowledge of the holy by A.W. Tozer. And he's just like, man, I have such a big view of God now. He's so big. He's awesome. Big is such a lame word to use about him. It's just on fire as he looked at how big and great God is. No wonder the chief end of the church is to make him known and shine forth his rays. Almost done here. Press on with me. Um, uh, Edmund Clowney summarized his thought. Reverent courtship, uh, corporate worship then is not optional for the church of God. Rather, it brings to expression the very being of the church. It manifests on earth the reality of the heavenly assembly. Corporate worship together, bringing and expressing the essence of the church. As we're together worshiping, we're just showing the reality of what's going on in the heavens. We're a part of of bringing glory uh, to God. Bob, Bob Coughlin on his book on worship, says, rehearsing our problems is not necessarily worshiping God, but recalling his character in the midst of them is. As we're suffering, as we're hurting, you know, you even look at Acts chapter uh, 4, when Peter and John are let out of prison and the church gets together and pray, they're, they're not just whining, but they start worshiping God. And God gives them boldness to face their trials. Worship will always be in response uh, to who God is. Ephesians chapter 5, 18 through 20, don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, uh, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, as we're here singing, uh, we're sometimes singing to each other. And in our songs to each other, we're saying, look to God, look how marvelous God is. We're singing to one another, admonishing one another in song. James 5.13 is, if anyone's suffering among you, let him pray. If he's cheerful, let him sing. Be worshipers, be be one who sings psalms. Hebrews 13 says that we should um, offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips. So So there's worship that's singing, right? and worshiping, and and shouting out. And then verse 16 goes on more into that broad aspect of worship, but don't forget to do good and to share. That's also worship, for which with such sacrifices, uh, God is well pleased. So in closing, to to, uh, go back to vintage church and just a definition of worship here, uh, one of our chief ends, it's a response to the revelation of the Lord consisting in both adoration and proclamation of the greatness of God and his mighty works and of serving him by living out his character in gracious service to others 
It is both proskuneo, which is the, the Greek word there for worship, which means literally to fall down and kiss Jesus' feet in an expression of one's allegiance and adoration to God. And it's latria or liturgio, which is ministering to the Lord and doing work and service in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in our glorifying God, it's worship, it's singing, falling down at the feet of Jesus and kissing his feet, kissing towards him. And it's also serving one another, ministering to the Lord. Why don't we go ahead and speaking of worship, uh, Kendra, why don't you come on up and the worship team. And so as we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, the subject of worship is God, the triune God, and the content will always be his excellencies. That means that church growth doesn't show us whether our quality of worship is good or bad. All right? Church can grow because the quality is poor and it's self-centered and self-serving. And so that's not something to gauge the health of the church or the health of a worship team. How can we gauge the health of worship? Not based on the style, not based on the number of people, but on these two things from Peter. Who's being proclaimed? The triune God. He's being glorified. He's being magnified. And secondly, what's the content? His excellencies. His awesomeness. And so we're going to close in worshiping him today. And we're going to, as Jesus said, proclaim his death and his burial and his resurrection. As we come to the communion table, we're going to uh, remember his body that was broken, stripped and whipped and pierced. And we're going to remember his blood that was shed for the purchase of his church, for his special possession, his toothbrush, if you will. <laughs> You know, that he, he's just, you're special. You have great purpose. Lord, as we, maybe some of us have had buttons pushed. Uh, some of us have been rubbed the wrong way this morning. Some of us have been confronted. Uh, Lord, that's not bad. That's good. You confront those that you love. Lord, we, we want to fulfill that chief end this morning. We want to... Be that mirror that reflects your beautiful rays and your splendor. Lord, as uh, it's common, a common phrase is theology brings doxology. And so, Lord, as we study you and, and the church, Lord, may we praise you and worship you. Be glorified in Calvary Chapel of Crook County. May we be God-centered, Christ-centered in everything we do, just for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, let us just come to the table with open hands. Lord, just saying, teach me, Lord. Teach me, God. Lord, take away any thought of your bride that is self-serving, self-centered, self-glorifying, makes me look big, makes me bigger, and Lord, may we just turn focus to you and make you big. As we sang this morning, let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. And Lord, let us care more about making you great than making self great. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.